Good morning. Let me ask you to find in your Bibles John, Gospel according to John, chapter 17, if you haven't already. If uh, <clears throat> you were last week's sermon, you may be a bit disappointed. Um, it's like a joke, only not funny. Okay, so uh, you may be, you know, I won't even try the second one, it'll be even worse. So um, let me say a brief word about the ministry fair in the foyer. Let me just encourage you to get connected that way if you are going to be in Prague for uh, weeks or longer, long enough to be connected. Uh, I speak now as, as one whose children have transitioned stateside to a different culture. And for our kids, the, their transition was better to the degree that they connected with the local church and got really involved. So many of you are in the transition over here and let me just encourage you that your transition will be smoother, your landing better, your ministry more fruitful if you're connected in a local church. If the Lord leads you somewhere else, that's fine. I'm just saying the Lord leads you here to connect here. Go ahead and get connected. You can be a member here without losing membership at uh, your church in your home country. Uh, my church asks nothing of us in the U.S. except to stay away. So, uh, you know, it's, it's okay. Uh, we, don't, we don't check IDs. Uh, so let me just encourage you again just to plug in and get connected, especially, and, and to serve the Lord in, in one of these areas. So John chapter 17, uh, you know, we find moments in our lives, we see them in human history when it seems like all the preparation and, and months of training and everything comes, comes to a moment. We see it in military battle as, as uh, soldiers prepare and train for months and months and then are sent by their leaders into battle. We see it in sports as coaches work and train and devise straight plays and strategies, but send their players into battle. We see it in, in music as teachers work with students. We saw it with our daughter who had a, a voice recital about a year ago and, and how her teachers had worked with her and invested in her, but in the end, they, they put her on the stage and she sang beautifully, I might add. Songs in five languages, so not all at once, but still. You know, pretty impressive. Um, I have no idea. Well, I don't know how she's so smart. I, I don't know. I think it's from her mom. So her mom was obviously smart enough to marry well, right? Okay. Thank you. You're, you're warming up. Good. So, but, but we see this, that those moments of training and preparation all, all lead to something. Frankly, I feel it every time I stand to preach. As I, as I stand to preach or open God's Word, I, I feel the... the in a sense, the weight of people who have invested in me. I think back even, even this morning as I, as I rose this morning to pray and do final preparation, I think back to the day the Lord saved me. I think back to a time when, when I just sensed a call to, to ministry vocationally and, 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 and stayed that direction. I think of the people who discipled me and invested in me, and it all comes to this morning. And that is why Jesus, I believe, began this prayer. Father, the, the time has come. The hour has come. Everything comes to this. Now we saw, uh, and let me say for visitors, we, uh, the last time I preached here, uh, we looked at the first five verses. We're, we're doing a, a series of sorts in, in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer. So we looked at the last time and we saw how He made two requests of the Father. The first, He said, Give me the honor of bearing the sins of the world that I might honor You by giving them life my death. So this is, this is a request grounded in this common purpose among Father, Son, and Spirit to, to save a people. And then the second request was, restore me to the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. 
Then in that request, he asked to return to his former glory because he had completed what the Father gave him to do. So he continues to pray now in verse 6, and that'll be our focus for today. And, and this time the focus shifts to those first followers. And likely the, the core of this is on these 11 remaining faithful disciples or apostles. But this also could be broader because there were many more than the 11 who believed in him and followed him who are called disciples. And as you know, he concludes the prayer at the end with praying for those who believe in him through the word of his disciples. And that includes even us who believe in him today. We'll, hopefully, God willing, we'll get to that the next time I, I get to preach. But for today, we'll focus on this middle section of his prayer for the disciples. These first disciples um, were, in a sense, the, the first generation of believers, first generation of Christians. But they might well have been the last. Now, someone has well said that Christianity is always no more than a generation from extinction because our faith must be passed on. We, we simply have to. That's inherent. It's inherent in the Great Commission. It's, that is the nature of it. And so, even though they were the first, they could have been the last. And in a very real sense, we stand sort of like they do. We have a mission. We have a purpose. If we don't pass it on, it will not be passed on. We have to pass on what we've received. So we saw uh, last time that Jesus had come to the Father and He said, I have completed the work You gave Me to do. But now the disciples are standing at the beginning of a work that is hardly begun. It's sort of like the uh, friend of mine who was a pastor did a wedding and the young man was so nervous he just sort of, just sort of froze. And, and after a minute he, he sort of came to himself and he asked the pastor who was doing the wedding, he said, is it over yet? And the pastor said, no, it's, it's just beginning. <laughs> you know, you understand what I mean. It was, that was the, the sense for the disciples, for Jesus. Jesus' work had finished. He had finished the work God had given him to do. And, and you'll notice if you study this prayer, he speaks of a lot of things that are about to happen in the next few days that he speaks of as if they are certain in the past tense, as if they have already happened. So he says, I have completed the work you gave me to do, but the disciples face an immense task. We see it in Matthew 28, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. I remember um, standing in line for my, my PhD graduation, standing in line and getting ready to go in, and one of my professors came up to me, and he, he's now with the Lord, but uh, he came, put his hand on my shoulders, he said, uh, and he knew we were on our way to Romania to, to serve there, and uh, he said, I, I, you, you got to go win Europe for me, I'm counting on you, I can't go, my health is bad, and, and, and so, uh, but I'm, I'm counting on you to go, and he just walked away, and that was his style, he would just walk up, say the most abrupt things, and then walk away, and I just let the weight of that sink in, win, win Europe for Steve Wilkes, and, uh, <laughs> and the guy next to me said, tough job, he said, I'm heading to Florida, so, you know, <laughs> I actually haven't heard from him since. But um, you, know, you feel the weight of this, that, that the things that are about to happen, the things that are before you. And so you have this, this immense task that we have of, of being here, uh, for many of us, a second culture, trying to persuade people that events that took place in yet a third culture have enormous significance for their eternal destinies. It's, it's almost insane, right? To bring the nations to the obedience of faith for His name's sake. It is far beyond what any of us can do. But we stand on the shoulders. We follow 
a long line of people who have believed and, and paid for their faith. But for these first ones, it's, it's a completely new challenge. So they face an immense task building on his completed work. They also are facing his imminent departure because he says several times in, this, in the course of his prayer, he is about to leave. And so both his imminent departure and their immense task really motivate him to pray as he does. And what we find is that he, you know, whereas most generals or music teachers or coaches um, will try to say inspiring words to their, their, uh, their troops and their students and their players, Jesus talks to the Father. He, he prays. I think it's more effective. And what we'll see is that what he prayed for them is what you and I need to fulfill the mission, the purpose that God has for us and his, his passion and purpose to redeem a people. So let's, let's just walk through these verses together, starting at verse 6. So if we look at verse 6, <clears throat> I want you to see first just how all of this starts with the Father, how it is grounded in the purpose of God. Jesus says this in verse 6, I have revealed you, literally I've revealed your name. Some of your translations may say that, but this synonymous with revealing the Father himself. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And he says something similar in verse 10. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. So as we saw last time, this, this shared life, this shared love, this, this shared glory among the Father and the Son and the Spirit has led to this pursuit of a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. You look in the last book of the Bible and you see this, this multitude that, that no man could number from every tribe and tongue and language and nation ascribing salvation to the Lord, to the Lamb. And so what we find is this, this passion, this purpose of God to redeem a people. And that, that's the foundation of this. Then he has this phrase, these are the ones you gave me from the world. So he's, he shifted his focus, as we saw last time, not from, away from something that happened before the world was created to something that has happened in human history in their lives. You give me these men from the world, from the, the mass of unbelieving humanity. You have given me these people, these men. And he was glorified. He was glorified in, in the days when his disciples were asking questions like, who then is this that that speaks to the wind and waves, and they listen. He was glorified in that day when he said, who do people say that I am? And, and they understood who the people around them, what they thought of Jesus. But then he said, but what do you, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, is you, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He was glorified in that. He was glorified as, as they're on this steep learning curve of what it means to know and follow Jesus. He was glorified in them. Then he moves on from that to, to how he has invested in them. He said, I, I revealed you to them. Um, everything he said, everything he did, reveal the Father to them to convince them of this core truth that he is Lord. He said, I gave them the words you gave me. Even the very words that Jesus spoke were given him by the Father. In John 5, he says, uh, he says, you know, I can do nothing, the Son can do nothing except what the Father shows him. That, that, is, that is how he lived. He simply lived moment by moment, giving what the Father gave him to pass on to people. So everything he said, everything he did was God's message to his followers and God's message through his followers to the rest of the world. 
Then he moves to to their response to what he had done for them. He says in verse 6, they have obeyed, literally the words kept, they have kept your word. They have come to know that what I gave them came from you. They received your words. They came to know truly that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. That's good. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great report. It's a great evaluation. I would love to, I would love to hope Jesus says that of, of each one of us. It's vital that we notice, though, first, that the, the, the first change that took place is their response to the Word. Okay? This is what led to their understanding. This is what led to their knowledge. This is what led to that conviction that He is Lord. It was their response to the Word. So if you're here today, be encouraged. It's not that you need more information. The first thing to, to do is to come before the Word of God, the Bible, humbly and receive it. Admit, accept it as true and believe it. That, but believe the Gospel. That, that's the first thing. It is a state of the heart more than acquiring information. Okay, So that should be encouraging to you if you're here today and you're hungry to know more the first place it starts is with your heart and your attitude toward, toward the Word of God. It's also good and encouraging for us who are servants of the Word. We're not Jesus. No, that was not a confusion anyway. But the authority and the power that we need is in the Word of God. It is not in our method. It's not in our strategy. It's not a, around any one personality, but it is in God's Word. So that, that is huge for us. That's encouraging. It's very freeing. All we really need to do is be faithful to God's Word and clear to the people who hear us. And both of those are important. I, can, I need to be faithful to God's Word, but also need to be clear and understandable. I could do this in a couple of different languages, and some of you wouldn't understand. That wouldn't be really effective. Hopefully, you can understand my Southern English, Southern American English, apologies to Trev, and... Uh, you know, the, the point, being faithful and being clear. But notice how he describes his, his first followers. He says, they obeyed, they've come to know, they've received, they've believed. And yet as we look back into to just the last few chapters of John, it doesn't seem like they would really inspire a lot of confidence. I mean, he's, it's like Jesus is coming to this last moment and he's, He's saying they are ready. I've invested in them. They've received the word and they are ready. I'm ready to release them. You know, again, I mentioned our daughter's voice recital a year ago. She'd worked for hours. She practiced flawless. It was great. It was beautiful. I've seen the sports team would play and they, they train and they, they fulfill things. They're, they're plans well and it's, it's fun to watch. It's, it's enjoyable. It is. And yet as we look at the disciples, they don't really inspire confidence. Let's look back in, in chapter 14 and verse 5. Jesus has begun to speak to them. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Like he's been with them three years. You don't get it. Then just a couple of seconds later, Philip said, Lord, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, after I've been with you? Such a long time. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. We move up to, to John 16, verse 17. At this, 
Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. And then the next verse, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. This is the last night they have together. I mean, if, if, if I felt like I had just invested three years in these guys, and this is like the final exam, and they didn't know anything, and they are saying over and over, we don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't inspire confidence, does it? And yet he says to, of them, they have believed, they've received, they've kept my word. It, down toward the end of 1629, uh, John 16, verse 29, they do confess they believe. In verse 29, it says, his disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. By the way, personally, I find that passage hard to understand. They're, they're, now, to them, he's clear. And I, I really have to spend some time thinking, studying, praying over understanding what he is saying. So now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see you know all things. You don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. And then it's like he doesn't believe they believe. In verse 31, do you now believe? He's like saying, really? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. This is the fruit of his labor for three years. These men in whom he has invested his life, they don't get it. And they will abandon him. In Luke, uh, Luke's account of this story, it says it was at this moment that an argument broke out among them over who's greatest. Can you imagine? <laughs> How you would feel if you had invested in these men, you had poured into them, you'd model for them what servant leadership is, and the last night, when you were like wanting to release and send them, they are arguing over who is greatest. They don't understand your heart. And even what they say they understand, they don't really understand. And yet... They were not, the picture isn't entirely negative. They, they also demonstrated some good qualities. Earlier in John's gospel, you remember in John 6, Jesus had been speaking. He called himself the bread of life. And he said some really, some difficult things like, unless you eat the, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. And this, this troubled a lot of his disciples and they, they, they left. They stopped following. And Jesus turned to, to these, to the 12, and he said, you're going to go away too? And Simon Peter said this classic verse, verse 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's like he's saying, I would if I could, because <laughs> I don't get this. But to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I may not understand what you just said, but I understand this much. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And they displayed, so there's, there's conviction of, about who Jesus is, and that is core. They also displayed Loyalty. Uh, it's after the raising, when, when he's about to go raise Lazarus and he's about to head toward Jerusalem and they say, Lord, if you go to Jerusalem, they'll arrest you. You'll be put to death. And, and Thomas, ever the cheerful one, he said, uh, let us also go, that is go to Jerusalem with Jesus, that we may die with him. Like, okay, we'll go. We'll, we'll die with you. Live or die. I'm going to follow Jesus. And there's a sense of devotion in John 13. 
John 13, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, you know the classic story. He comes to Peter. Peter says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And, and Peter just says, well, Lord, not just my feet, do my head and my hands too. You know, there's just a sense of, you call it affection or devotion, or where he just cherishes the Lord. And so, you know, the, the picture isn't all, all bad. They're a mixed bag, a lot like all of us, right? But it, it gives us a glimpse of, of what he values in that. That he could look at, at that whole picture and despite knowing that literally in a few minutes, they will all desert him. That a few minutes before this, they seemed to have no clue what he was even talking about. And yet he would say of them to the Father, they have received my words which came from you. They have kept them. They have obeyed. They have come to know. He, he, he understood that. And so I, I find this very encouraging. I find his evaluation of them more gracious than we might expect. And, and that gives me hope that his evaluation of us, of me, is more gracious than I might expect. I tend to come before the Lord conscious of my failures. And that's not a bad thing unless you stay there. <laughs> okay, it's, it's good to be aware that we fall short, right? Okay, but we're not meant to stay overwhelmed by failure, but to receive forgiveness and move forward. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, there is a repentance without regret, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance without regret. And so, yes, there is, there is sorrow for sin. Yes, there is, a, you know, I recognize it's wrong, but also I realize I love the Lord and, and I regret the things I have done or failed to do. But I'm not consumed by regret. We're to be consumed by grace. And so, I just hope you know that, that Jesus knows your secrets. He knows your addictions. He knows your failures. He knows your motives. He knows all of that. And yet there is a cross and an empty tomb that tell us that for those who have put their hope in Jesus, those things are no longer a fact. That is so liberating. and That is good news, right? That's good news, right? Thank you. (laughs) Maybe my failures are worse than yours. But to you guys need to wake up each morning and preach the gospel to yourselves. Can you imagine? You think about where we have fallen short and to know that, that if you have put your hope in Jesus as a gift because of all that He suffered, those things and tomorrow's failures as well are not an issue. It, it is, it is mind-boggling. It is. And... Perhaps you need to learn to see yourself as the Lord sees you. Perhaps you you might need to give yourselves a little grace. So as we move to verse 9, we're still building toward His request, by the way. (laughs) See why I split this into three sermons. Um, As we go to verse 9, He gets more specific about the situation, His imminent departure, their immense task. And He says something that that seems a bit odd. He says in verse 9, I pray for them. That's good so far, right? That's, that's, that's awesome. Then he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. Now by world here, Jesus means, of course, unbelieving humanity. And it seems almost unkind, right? It's like, why would he not pray for the world? 
Well, first, his focus is on his disciples. He is sending them into the world. Okay, So the things he would ask the Father for his disciples are not the things he's asking for for the world. But he is about to send them to that same world. And the things he's praying for his disciples are for the benefit of the world. All right? So just kind (laughs) of let that sink in a minute. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for my disciples. But the things he prays for his disciples are in fact for the benefit, for the salvation of the world. So if you are troubled by that, I hope you're free and cleared out. And we come to this specific situation, verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And here's this imminent departure. I am coming to you. And then he makes his first request. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus says, keep them in this name. And I, I used the, the English Standard Version. I think the translation is a little better. Keeping them in your name as opposed to keeping them by the power of your name, which is what the NIV and your pew Bible say. Uh, difference isn't great, but I think it's, it's better. Um, he says, keep them in your name. Well, what does he mean by that? He says, keep them in the name, the name you have given me. What, what does this mean? Is there some secret unknown name? I, I don't think so. See, Jesus, he says, there is this name. Now, it will help us to know that so great was the reverence of Jews for the name of God, Yahweh, that they would not actually say that name. If in many of your English translations, you have the word Lord. Sometimes it's in small capital letters. And that is usually the translation in the English of this word uh, Yahweh, the name Yahweh. And it means the one who is. Okay. It was never spoken aloud. Um, but different names were, were substituted. So they would use, the Jews, for example, would use their word uh, for Lord, which is Adonai. And even in the Hebrew Bible, they, they would use the vowels for Adonai with the consonants for Yahweh. That leads to Yehoah or Jehovah. That is where the, the common pronunciation of that name comes from. So, I know, you're all writing that one down. So, there is this name. But another substitute, another thing Jews would say instead of Yahweh was the name above all names. They would just, that's what they would say. And we read in Philippians 2 that God has exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we are back to recognizing what this means. Jesus is Yahweh. Now, it is unthinkable. The Jews would say, there's only one God, one Lord. Right. No man could take that name. And yet, that is exactly what has happened because Jesus is Lord. Now the word Lord, like uh, like pan here in, in, in Czech, it can mean sir. And uh, Czech friends will say pan bu for Lord God, and that, that we get that. That's the same in, in the Greek language too. The word kurios can mean Lord, it can mean sir, it can mean the Lord God. But here, there's no question when the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, it's not just saying Jesus is worthy of respect. It is saying Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. A, a the God, man, it is, it is mind-boggling. 
So it is perfectly consistent for us to truly worship Jesus, as many have through the ages. So in verse 11, when he says, keep them, protect or guard, preserve or maintain them, he is asking his disciple, he is asking the Father to keep his disciples faithful to that, that core conviction and that core belief. Jesus is Lord. So he asks the Father to protect them so that they'll be one. Unity is incredibly important. The Lord is passionate that we will be one as he is one. It's a, it's a powerful testimony when people who otherwise would would not choose to be together, gather in Jesus' name. I'll say more about unity, God willing, the final sermon on the last part of the prayer. But for centuries, you need to know, or you need to know that for centuries, Christian unity is centered around this one confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. People paid with their lives because they would not say Caesar is Lord, but instead confess Jesus is Lord. Many have paid with their lives Hundreds of years. And then he says something that's this a bit sobering, maybe troubling. In verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe. Or I watched over them by that name you gave me. Good. So far, he protected, he watched over. That's, that's all good. We like that. We can see in the Gospels maybe how he protected. He taught them. He spent time with them, invested, modeled what, it, what this life meant. Um, he, and I'm sure he did much more than we know. But soon after his, his prayer in John chapter 18, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, they, he asked the soldiers, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, um, he said, if you're looking for me, let these men go. And John adds this note, that this fulfills what he had spoken in prayer of all that you gave me, I did not lose one. So that's at least a part of, of what's, what is meant here. All that's great. We're, we're glad that Jesus watches over and protects. But then, the rest of verse 12, he says, None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. So you need to know there's not exactly a word play, but the word for lost and the word for destruction are the same word. It's like none has been destroyed except the one doomed to destruction. Or none has been lost except the one who's doomed to be lost. It's a... Different form of the same word. Now, what scripture was fulfilled, he doesn't say. Maybe it's Psalm 41, 9, where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I don't know. That's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe Judas's betrayal. But we might, might be troubled by this, right? I mean, is Judas doomed to this destiny? Was he not free? Did he not have a choice? Could he not have done differently? Well, I'll admit, there's a bit of mystery here. But sometimes we use words without thinking about what they mean. So I need us to think for a few minutes about what it means to be free. So if by free, you mean willing or not coerced, yeah, Judas was free, we're free. We make willing choices. We make them all the time. You made a willing choice to come to church this morning, your children perhaps not so willing, but still, that's reality of family life. Um, you made a willing choice to come here. You'll make a willing choice with what, with what you do afterwards. We make willing choices all the time. Judas made a willing choice to betray Jesus. Nobody forced him. Nobody coerced him. He was not dragged, kicking and screaming 
into to betraying Jesus. Okay? He did this willingly. But if by free you mean that we are all morally neutral, we can make any choice at any time, or we can make good choices from a bad nature, no, we are not free. Okay? You are not free to do anything you want to do because your, your wanter is broken. Okay? Our will, our, our, that thing in us that, by which we choose, never operates in a vacuum. It always operates in, in collaboration with our mind, that is, with what we think, with our, with our heart, with what we desire, with our affections, with what we want, with what we love, with our conscience, with what we think is, is right and wrong. It, it always operates in, in conjunction with those things. So you might want something. Your conscience, you might, let's say you see an opportunity to take money that isn't yours, okay? You might want that. You, say, you know what? We could use the money. That would be great. But your conscience tells you that would be wrong. And with your will, you say, no, I won't do that. That's kind of how it works, right? Okay. Our, our wills are, are not separate from the rest of us. And so in that sense, we are not free. If our minds are corrupt and our desires are corrupt and our affections are corrupt and our love is corrupt and our heart is corrupt and our conscience is warped, our will is going to follow in line with those. And so Judas made a choice from a corrupt nature. Apart from the grace of God, all of our choices are corrupt because that is who we are. We are fallen. We are loved. We are fallen. You need to understand this. And it's, it's worse than you know. <laughs> okay, It is deeper than you know. So Judas made a willing choice, but out of a corrupt heart. Jesus called Judas a devil. John chapter 6, right after Peter has made his confession, where, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So how does this work out? You know, there is mystery here, but understand that you don't make good choices from a corrupt nature. Only by the, by the grace of God do we learn wisdom and, and in the gospel and, and learn to, to live wisely and in fellowship with the Lord. So Judas's willing evil choice sprang from a corrupt nature. Whatever Judas intended, his wicked choice advanced the purpose of God. It was always God's purpose for Jesus to die and rise again. Judas's evil choice advanced that purpose. You need to know this. Your willing choices will advance the purpose of God, regardless of your intent. <laughs> so well, that's not fair. It's like it's all rigged. You just need to understand. You will fulfill God's purpose, either by good or by evil. For some of you, that's really good news. You desire to do God. You, you desire to do what the Lord wants. You desire to serve God. You desire to do His will. And you say, that's encouraging. The Lord will, will, he will fulfill His will. But for some of you, if you think you can somehow deny God's purpose, deny God His due glory, you will find that He will get His glory. You will find that, that your wickedness 
will only serve to advance the purpose of God. I can't help but think about this part of the world where, where atheistic regimes sought to stamp out Christianity. And what did they do? They only created a hunger to know Christ. Now understand, this is, this is something we discern looking back. It's not something we, we tend to recognize in the midst. But looking back, we see the, the, the evil intent, even an evil intent advances God's purpose in some way. So now that I've solved that problem, let's move to verse 13. Jesus says, I say these things that my joy may be fulfilled in them. What, what things does he say? Well, we may have in mind all that he has said to his disciples from, from uh, John 13 to 16. Uh, I think his disciples certainly heard him praying this prayer. I think they had opportunity to hear this, look back on that, think of, of all that Jesus suffered and know that he was praying not for himself, but primarily for them. He says in, in chapter 16, verse 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That he's speaking of his death. But then of the coming victory, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And so all of this he has said that their joy may be made full in him. He's not asking the Father to make him joyful. He is saying, my words bring joy. So again, let me just ask, do his words bring joy to you? Are, are, is your joy found in, in, in Jesus' words, in, in the word of God? That's a, that's a good heart check for us. Then as he, as he continues to pray, he, he moves toward his second request. Okay. So he focuses on how their relationship with him has irreversibly changed their relationship with the world. He says they've received his word. For this reason, the world to which they once belonged now hates them just like it hated him. Because they don't belong to the world just like he didn't belong to the world. That is not a part of unbelieving humanity any longer. So his second request, first is a bit odd. It's not to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So why not take them out of the world? Why not spare them that heartache? Because they must, as we must, testify to the world of who Jesus is. That is what the Lord wants. He wants the world to know Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And these first generation of disciples, as many have in the succeeding centuries, they will pay a price of those 11, 10 will die a martyr's death. John will live the longest and yet suffer a life marked by suffering and exile and, and hard labor. So he prays not that they'll be taken from this, but that they will be protected from the evil one. And that does not mean that the devil would lead them alone. That's not what happens. I, you know, I don't recall any controversy with the devil before I knew the Lord. <laughs> the Lord saved me and suddenly I had... A lot of controversy. <laughs> Thankfully, I was, you know, it, was, it was the good fight, right? <laughs> well, I believe his, his prayer here when he says keep us from the evil one is this, that the Father would protect us no matter what the devil does to us, we will not abandon our faith in Him as Lord. How does this work? We look in Luke 22. Jesus says this to to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Simon, of course, ready to demonstrate his loyalty, he says, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So note this about, about Jesus' intercession for Simon Peter. It did not prevent this trial. Okay? 
It did not prevent Peter being tempted to deny Jesus. It did not prevent Peter failing. It did not prevent Peter's denial of Jesus. Jesus prayed for Peter. Peter denied Jesus. The problem was not with Jesus' prayers. We have to, again, we have to take the longer look and look back. Jesus' intercession did guarantee Peter would recover, he would return, and he would be fruitful moving forward. It's very encouraging. Jesus prays for us. It doesn't mean we're spared from trials. Often it means our trials are worse than they would be otherwise. But what it does mean is that he strengthens us. If we fail, as as the, the Scriptures tell us, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. As Micah tells us, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. But it is incredibly liberating, incredibly confidence-building that Jesus intercedes for us. He is praying. He's not praying for all of us. He's praying for each of us. <laughs> in this moment, as you are suffering through my preaching, He is laboring for you in prayer. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. The writer of Hebrews says he lives to intercede for us. It's mind-boggling. So then in verse 16, Jesus moves on as he, he repeats their relationship to the world. And then in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we've seen how the disciples, by putting their hope in Jesus, receiving his words, it has changed their relationship to the world. They, they once belonged to the world. Now they do not. So the world hates them. But now he says, sanctify them by, the truth, by, by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify, it's the same meaning as the root word for holy. That is, it means set apart. God is holy. He's set apart. He's different from every other being that exists. And when we are set apart for him, it is in effect here saying, we no longer belong to the world. We belong to the Father. So, yes, we, we lost Identity and purpose that the world might have offered us, but now we have it in the Father, in Christ. And so, he's, His Word makes that true in our experience, our day-to-day -day living, what is true of us in God's sight. It works in us internally to transform our character, works in us externally or through us externally as the Gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The same is true of Jesus as He, he says in verse 18 and 19. He was set apart and sent into the world. Now as this moment arrives, soldiers are on their way. He affirms this again. I, I am set apart. And, he, and in a sense, he dedicates himself anew to, to, especially to his purpose in these next hours. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. He sets himself apart, dedicates himself to God's purpose that we might receive all of that as a gift. So, what does all of this mean for us? It means this. The Father wants the world to know about Jesus. Okay. It's a given. He wants everyone to know Jesus is Lord. He will make you useful. He'll make you fruitful to that end. I uh, read a, a, a book, a few, finished a book a few days ago, um, it's N.T. Wright's biography of Paul, but he, he was commenting on the, the, just the amazing impact Christianity had on, on that part of the world, even like second century. And, and he pointed out that, you know, the, that Paul did not see these things happen. They were the fruit of his life. And you may be in a place where you are sowing more than you are reaping. You are 
seeking to live for the Lord, you are seeking to be faithful where you are and you do not see fruit, do not give up. Do not grow weary in doing good. Your, your investment will bear fruit in time. Okay? So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Know that the Lord, the Father, wants people to know Jesus is Lord. He wants them to know Him. So what, what should we do? First, receive His Word. Just simply remain faithful day by day to that confession. Jesus is Lord. Second, expect the world to treat you like you do not belong to it. Anybody ever ask you, how's the world treating you? How do I say that? Finally, that's that's what I've said alone. They treat me like I don't belong. (laughs) Because I don't. I think differently. I do things differently. And I use the same internet. I use the same, you know, mobile phones. But my, my heart, my values, my character has been changed by the grace of God. I'm not perfect. I'm a worse mixed bag than, 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 the, than the first generation. But you need to live with this expectation that you will not be treated like you belong to the world because your identity and purpose has been fundamentally changed because you know Jesus. But at the same time, you live sanctified. You live, the Father, you know that the Father will treat you like you do belong to Him. Okay? We don't belong to the world, but that doesn't mean we don't belong anywhere. You belong to the Lord. You're Christ. He, he has you engraved on His hands. He, he carries you in His heart. He lives to intercede for you. He, the things He suffered for you. Do not think He has forgotten or, or abandoned or has no use for you. So trust that, that you belong to Him and know that He is up to good in your life. Rest in Jesus as as the ultimate intercessor, protector, Savior, and Lord. And for those of of us who who scatter in in this week to our various places of work and service and school and wherever you are, just seek to bear faithful witness to to Jesus as Lord where you are as the Lord gives you opportunity. You may not just have somebody walk up and, you know, it'll be like, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch walked up to somebody who just happens to be reading Isaiah 53 and says, hey, I need somebody to explain this. may not be that open. But just ask the Lord for opportunities and the grace to recognize them and just seek to be faithful. That is what He asks of you, is faithfulness. And then finally for you who are here today and all of this seems strange and if you were to ask or ask yourself where you belong, if it's to the Word or to the Lord, you, you might say, I belong more to the world. Uh, that can change. It can change today. If you put your hope in Jesus and His unfailing love, uh, it will change your relationship to the world, but it will change your relationship to Jesus also. So you need to know He died and He rose again that you might have life, that you might know Him. And He promises the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. So I plead with you today, if you've never put your hope in Jesus, commit your life to Him today. If you have Questions about what that means, find one of us. Talk to us after the service today. We'll be delighted to help you as you seek to to understand what that means. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We gladly confess he is Lord. Help us not to expect the world to treat us as if we belong to it, but help us live the days to come knowing that we belong to you and nothing can change that. We love you. We thank you. We pray you will seal into our hearts what you want to remain and take the rest away.
We commit it to you, commit our lives to you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen.